was looking just now to see what the last one we talked about was. And let's see. Um, Ready Player One. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. April 2018. God, that was a long time ago. And the last one you and I did together. Let's see. We did Jumanji. I'm so glad that we did that. Me too. Have you seen the new one? Because I still haven't gotten around to seeing the new one. Okay, so the new, new one, no, but I liked we. Oh, did we do the sequel? Was that what we were talking about? Well, that was what we had originally planned to, but I think plans fell through. And I just uh, talked about the this initial sequel with my roommate. Mm-hmm. But did you ever get around to seeing that one? No, I well, I saw the I saw Into the Jungle, but I didn't see okay. the the new one. Well, I haven't seen the new new one. I've seen Into the Jungle, and I thought it was amazing. <laughs> did you yeah, like it as much I, as I did? I was genuinely impressed. Uh, Jack Black deserved an Oscar for that role. <laughs> Between that and the holiday, I, I think uh, Jack Black is it can actually act occasionally. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was I was so impressed. I pretty much I was not expecting to be even mildly amused. And I came away going, holy crap, like, despite all odds, it had like good writing and good acting. And yeah. I was very pleased with it. And I mean, save from Robin Williams, maybe this is heresy, I don't know, but I think I like Into the Jungle more than the original film. Well, and I remember talking about this with you uh, during our Jumanji episode, but it's a very depressing story. It is. Like, it's a very, yeah. The original Jumanji is extremely depressing about a, a kid who can never really live up to his father's expectations and how like growing up beats you down. Right. Like it's not a good, like it's it's masquerading as... Oh, a fun let's get caught in the board game movie, but the the, the heart is very a lot darker than you I think remember. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like watching Casper again and being like, "Holy shit!" There's like some suicide <laughs> stuff going on. Like you know, you don't really realize it, but some of that gets pretty dark as well. Right? And you're like, "I thought this was a kids movie. Like when I was seven, this was awesome." <laughs> now that you mention that, um, I think I do remember crying through Jumanji, the first one at least. And <laughs> I mean, that has its merits for sure. But mostly, the Into the Jungle was just a lot of fun. And so, I, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to trying to see the new one. Maybe I can try and get it before it's out of theaters i think it's still in at the moment but yeah yeah no i got such a long list of movies i gotta see but yeah. uh instead i'm re-watching old ones to talk about with you <laughs> oh, that has its merits too <laughs> and speaking of let's go ahead and go into things then so nice hello everybody welcome to episode 80 of cinescope we're going to be talking about a comedy this time which isn't something we always do uh more on that in just a moment returning guest we have eric Skullback to talk about movies with me once again we were just reminiscing about how long it's been it was april 2018 that was the last time eric and i actually talked mic to mic so so glad to have you back eric it's good to be back. It feels like yesterday, kind of. Kind of, right? yeah. Like I a, mean, a little bit. It's a little, it's bit. a little bit like riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you for having me back. This is going to be super exciting. Well, for new listeners who maybe hopefully came from the other podcast, uh, <laughs> do you want to introduce yourself, tell people who you are, as if you're yeah. not enough of a legend already? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, you. I'm teasing a little bit, but it's true. I've been listening to you since 2005, so... It's true that my podcast, MuggleCast, turns 15 this year. Yikes. That's amazing. Yikes, right? <laughs> okay, that's 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 true. And it's nuts for us, too. We're um, working on kind of figuring out what kind of art we're going to do, like, new artwork and stuff for the show <laughs> we're like how do we how do we celebrate 15 like a gi- besides a giant number one five <laughs> i don't know what we're gonna do um but it's exciting but yeah i have a weekly harry potter podcast called MuggleCast, which is uh really just your weekly journey through the wizarding worlds if you're into harry potter and also want to keep up to date with what is going on in that i guess you'd call it fandom with the the franchise and um various ancillary properties it's not a heady kind of show. It's fun. A group of friends do it all together. So definitely check that out. And since we last were together, and actually quite recently, a couple months ago, the improvised Star Trek podcast has ended. I saw that. And it was wonderful. I got to do, I, I got to guest host a couple, or guest improvise a couple of times with them towards the end there. Uh, and I'm really, really happy with how the final episodes turned out. And it was a good narrative resolution to an arc. When you consider that most of that, well, all of that show, each individual episode was 
improvised. The idea that they could also improvise their character's own resolution in a satisfying way uh, is really, really wonderful. So uh, it just comes from how familiar everybody got to be with the characters and, and, and their choices. But I think we really brought that ship in for a landing, so to speak, uh, in a really beautiful way. That was just in November, so not too long ago. And then ever since then, I've just kind of been hanging out and going, God, what do I do with all my time? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Guessed a whole bunch more on Cinescope, that's what. <laughs> that, hey, I am all for that, man. You and I, you and I know that, that we have a short list of like, at least what 13 movies oh so many i've got a list uh when i started planning the relaunch i was like okay i want to talk about this and this and this and this and i don't know how long this was oh it looks like 50 something movies so oh my god yeah well (laughs) and it benefits like we really do have similar tastes but also for like i found for different reasons like not strictly but you know i think we both find really unique things to love about each of these movies we always talk about Yes, we do. And with that, let's just go ahead and transition into this week's movie. We are talking about In Bruges, which I just learned how to pronounce last night (laughs) when I watched the movie. (laughs) It is a comedy, and it released on February 8th of 2008. It was directed by Martin McDonough, who also directed Six Shooters, Seven Psychopaths, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It was written by McDonough. The music is by Carter Burwell, who composed the scores for all of the Coen Brothers films except for Oh Brother Where Art Thou and Inside You and Davis. He also composed for Doc Hollywood, Being John Malkovich, A Knight's Tale, The Rookie, Adaptation, Twilight, Where the Wild Things Are, The Blind Side, Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Parts 1 and 2, The Fifth Estate, Mr. Holmes, Anomalisa, The Founder, The Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Goodbye, Christopher Robin, and most recently, Missing Link. And I list all those just to speak to the prolificness of Mr. Burwell's work. He spans all kinds of genres. I think he also co-composed the score for a Goofy movie, which I don't have listed here, but it's true with the guy (laughs) who also composed the score for The Matrix. So that's an odd team up. But anyways, Mr. Carter Burwell, he's got a beautiful score for this film. Oh my God. Yeah, well, and all of those films, like, and being John Malkovich, like, you need a very specifically talented composer for that kind of a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are movies that aren't like any other movie and it works like in, in Bruges. I think there are certainly films that are on the darker side of, of, you know, for comedy that we've seen, but there's still, I don't think there's another film that's quite exactly the nice mixture of comedy and, empathy and sympathy that 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 this film is so although it's a comedy the music is beautiful a lot of piano soft piano Mm -hmm. and a lot of uh just really mood setting it does what it's supposed to do but in a really for this movie (laughs) given that uh, a lot happens in the uh 100 minute runtime i I'm, i find myself very impressed by this mr carter burwell yeah my introduction to him was through goodness what's the name of that western uh, True Grit, the Coen oh, Brothers yeah. adaptation of True Grit. And ever since then, I've listened to a few. I'm not overly familiar with Burwell versus some other composers, but he, he's got a really solid body of work. Uh, lots of great scores. And definitely, I mean, the Twilight Saga had good scores. I remember Where the Wild Things Are watching it. Now, I've not seen the Billboards movie. Have you seen the Billboards movie? I haven't either. I, I know it was really popular a couple years ago, did well at the Oscars, but yeah, I, yeah, I haven't yeah. gotten around to it. It's nice to see. So placing this movie in time was a real like shock to my system a little bit when we, you know, I, I too was um, rewatching it recently and I was like, man, 2008, like where specifically this occurred in time. It's nice to see that Martin McDonough has done, you know, seven psychopaths, three billboards, I think all happened after this, but this film being released in 2008, this was after a film that you and I more commonly know most of these actors from, I think, <laughs> which was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Right. And that film came out in 2005. Mm-hmm. The idea that both uh, Clemens Poesi and, of course, uh, Brendan Gleeson would be, and Ray Fiennes, uh, who also made his debut, all three of those actors made their Harry Potter debut in that movie in 2005, all in the same film, and are all in this film three years later. And I'm thinking, wow, they dress down into muggle gear very nicely. <laughs> Plus you have Siren Hins in a surprise cameo uh, that was Aberforth. You have Colin yeah. Farrell, who has since appeared in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series. And right. so this is... I. I said this to you in a text message last night. This is Harry Potter actors, the movie <laughs> <laughs> Harry and Potter adjacent. And yet, 
it's so different and in so many ways better than any of those movies. I mean, I, I think that's fair to say, too, and because this is an original script we're working with, and it's so much more, I don't know, this movie makes me feel more, and these actors, it's so great seeing them in completely different roles, which is always a challenge. I mean, always, always a pleasure with any of these actors, because they're so good at what they do, obviously. But this particular film, I, I really relish everybody's role. I think the film was cast extremely well. Well, let's list the actors, and then we'll get into your first experience with the movie. It stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Ray Fiennes, Clemens Poesy, uh, Jordan Prentice, Thecla Royton, and Jeremy Rainier. Apologies on those last couple. I don't know exactly how to pronounce them. <laughs> uh, but what was your first experience with this, Eric? I I'm really curious because I'll, I'll say just flat out, my first experience with this movie was I watched it last night in my bedroom. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about it. I, I mean, I saw the cast list and I was vaguely familiar with the title in Brudges and Br what, what is this? Uh, Brudges, so I'm Brudges, really it, yeah. interested to hear your story with this movie and what brought you to wanting to talk about it on the podcast. So are we talking about this because you were generous enough to say, what are some of your favorite movies? And I listed this one among them. Did that did that happen? I'm not sure. I asked what the we we had been talking about the relaunch of cinescope impending and this was back mm. like in september of last year or something like that and mm. you mentioned this as one of the movies you'd like to talk about so yeah because because the same exact thing was my first experience with Bruges. a friend said to me you got to see this movie okay <laughs> and so 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 it's very much the same i think it was uh i think it was my friend andrew not who i podcast with my other friend andrew but somebody gave me like the DVD or, or, or lent theirs to me or, or, or something and said, you know, kind of as a kicker, oh, it's got several Harry Potter actors into it. And obviously they knew I was really into Harry Potter. So I, I, they said I'd like it, but they, it was pretty much the same intro. Like, Hey, it's Harry Potter actors. Uh, this movie is not about Harry Potter. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, it's as different as it, as it is possible to get. But having watched it, I must've been like, I think it was like early, early to mid 20s, but I was just mature enough to really appreciate the darker angle. And I typically don't love movies that relish being either politically incorrect, which I know, especially Colin Farrell's character is kind of like that kind of a character mm -hmm. uh, for, for most of the movie, especially before you kind of realize what his deal is. And I don't love... Like dark humor is a thing, and I also don't really enjoy huge crime films. I'm not I'm not really like a crime film kind of guy. But watching this for the first time, watching how those various elements blend together, and of course, once the movie's heart and soul is revealed, I was really just blown away. So I was kind of taken in, you know, see this movie for actors you recognize, but leave and recommend this movie based on the transformative emotional experience. That's very interesting. So when I sat down for the movie last night, I only knew the cast list. I knew the title eventually, and I knew that it was labeled at least as a dark comedy. And so that sort of set something off in my mind. It's like, okay, this is a comedy. I don't know what exactly I'm getting in for. A lot of times I sit down for something labeled as a comedy and I don't love it. So I was mm -hmm. sort of prepared for that. But as we were talking before we officially hit the record button tonight, I find it really difficult to think of this film as a comedy in any capacity. It's, it's <laughs> funny. There are certainly times and jokes, and I've got a list of things that made me snicker, at least, throughout the film. And I, I did enjoy the comedy aspects of this. But I also said, you know, if this is a comedy, then it's the most thoughtful comedy of all time. Because there is a lot of heavy stuff here. There's a lot of weight. There's this question of morality that we'll talk about. And so I was really, really taken with how this film, yes, uses comedy, but more importantly, uses comedy as sort of an afterthought to the thoughtfulness. I, I would love to see that on a future DVD cover or Blu-ray cover, whatever they do, like the most thoughtful comedy of all time, like <laughs> in Bruges, because, you know, and then Cinescope podcast in, in as under the hyphen, because I, I, I love that for it. And I, I completely agree with it. It's just what what is funniest for me and why I would group it as a comedy, even though it's got huge heart 
is because the entire thing, so it's, it's you know, focusing on these two hitmen. But the movie itself is kind of like a hit job on the city of Bruges. Right. <laughs> In Belgium. They're just, I mean, if you talk about like opening lines, it's a shithole. It's not a shithole. It's a shithole. It's <laughs> like, you just like, and the, this whole argument in the first part of the film about whether or not Bruges is this quaint, nice town that is deserving of respect and admiration for its historical value, or whether it's just like boring. <laughs> And not at all an interesting place to see. Like, it just seems like, like they could do a, a, a Martin McDonough could write a hit job movie for like any city and just set it in any, any given city. Like you could have the Tulsa, like in Tulsa movie or, or in London or in, you know, you could do this around the world that strikes me as being something about surrounding, it just fully lives in its environment. And that is ridiculously funny to me. I'm curious, do you think there's any significance to selecting Bruges as the location? Like, is there any sort of meaning there as it applies to these men who are struggling with morality and what's right and wrong? Just in insofar as it's brought up in the film that it is kind of an idyllic or idyllic town and it is very angelic by night and so and and it's quite you know it's not a developed huge metropolis and i think that getting away from city life you know and and we'll i know we'll talk about the themes later but finding solitude to really reflect on your own sins is obviously a very big part of the film and where better to do that than this place that literally looks like a dream and it also features a place uh, that claims to have a vial of Jesus Christ's blood. Like, if yep. that doesn't say something about redemption, I don't know what does. And the, the fact that Ray, Colin Farrell's character, is reluctant, doesn't want to touch the, the blood of Christ, it almost says something about whether he thinks he could be redeemed. And certainly the other characters don't think he could, except for Ken seems to think that Ray has a chance at redemption. But Harry says, no, this is what happened. You you killed a child, accident or not. It means you have to lose your life as a result. So there's just that part of the location where there is this like meaningful Christian artifact. How does that fit in with these characters who are seeking redemption? I love that a lot. And, you know, it's been a few years since the last time I sat down to watch this movie. I remember, you know, it's two hitmen. It's their boss. He eventually shows up later in the picture, obviously played by Ray Fiennes, Harry. But he, you know, I remember the basic plot points. But what I'm always, I guess, re-surprised by is the depth of character. Like, for instance, one of them is a really good tourist and the other one is the worst tourist in the world, as it is stated in the <laughs> film. And it's just like the little nuance in the characters. It's just these. this strikes me as being one of these films you could watch a dozen times and it wouldn't get old. Do you have any more story stuff to talk about or could we just go ahead and transition into characters? Story stuff, definitely, I, I think overall, it's just so tightly wound and tightly written, but it doesn't feel frenetic the way that sort of like Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels or Guy Ritchie films are always just so, I, I guess, bombastic and actiony. This film manages to have action and a lot of weight to that action, but it still moves along in a more melodic pace i guess i don't know it, it manages to do a lot with mood and tone in the music and the lighting and the story and i think all of it is one it's just so supremely packaged i would agree i i think that yes there's the action that sort of helps keep it keep things going but really the action there at least the heaviest parts of it aren't featured until the last 20 minutes of the film so you, you get a couple of like sporadic moments of action courtesy of ray but <laughs> other than that it's just Again, it's a thoughtful character piece, really. And that's that's the way I read most of the film while laughing <laughs> a lot of the time, too. <laughs> so what about Ken, played by Brendan Gleeson? What do you have to say about his character? Ken is the most thoughtful, unraveling flower, I guess, in this film. It's a weird thing to think of, but like his character, you can see immediately because he appreciates history and he appreciates the sort of the setting that he's a more empathetic kind of character especially for hitman 
which is nice. But as the film goes on, you see him not only refuse to kill Ray, but he even tells the story during the cocaine sequence of <laughs> his wife who had passed away. And I am and and, and the fact that and it, you know, it's kind of one of those if you aren't paying attention, you might miss it. But the debt that he feels that he owes his boss, that, that he owes Harry for catching his wife's killer and and sort of avenging the death of his wife for him. And so he's all he's you find out to the, the extent to which he's driven by emotion. And in in gradually over the time of this film, you see that this guy who is completely empathetic, completely appreciates nature and life how that guy could realistically be someone who kills people for money he's genuinely a good person and i I think the way you described him as sort of a delicate flower is really apt but it's also like wow we're talking about a hitman here and this is a guy who kills person (laughs) for a living and so even though we see him being kind to the owner of the hotel he's pleasant to the people he interacts with even when they aren't necessarily pleasant to him like the guard at the bell tower at the start of the film not letting him up when he's only 10 cents short or the americans going to the bell tower Uh, (laughs) um, he he is doing his best to be a good person who still kills people and when they leave that church where jesus christ's blood is he and ray are having this conversation ray's asking about the afterlife and whether you can be forgiven. And so Ken reveals a little bit about himself. He says, you know, I, I don't know. Can I make peace with being a good person who also kills people, which is wrong? He says, you know, most of the people I've killed were not very good people. So is that how they justify it? What trust do we have of a man who kills person to say that another person isn't very nice? Like what, what frame is that set in? That helps us as people who don't kill people understand this guy's mindset. <laughs> I think it definitely helps that we don't see him, unless I'm very mistaken, we don't see him killing anybody on screen. No. We see him sort of trying to clean up Ray's mess. We see him escorting Ray to it. But the the, the, the real actor here who kills people is, is Ray. I mean, he actively blinds Eric, who's trying to rob him. You know, and, and that's another thing I completely forgot about it is, you know, Clemens Boise's character, the extent to which she is involved with that, this guy, Eric, her boyfriend, who they robbed tourists and really just all of the subplots kind of fell by the, the, the wayside here. But Ken, in particular not killing people, refusing to, in fact, kill not just Ray, but even refusing to kill Harry and saying, I respect the hell out of you, you know, and do what you must. I completely understand when Harry is trying to kill him. It really, I think, is important. It tugs at the heartstrings when you see this guy who supposedly killed people, but all that you're viewing really is his softness and his heart. We learn that he apparently took Ray under his wing and brought brought him up into the business. And we also learned that this incident that took place where Ray accidentally kills his child, I think they said it was his very first job. He did say that. Yeah. And I wondered, does that seem realistic to you? Realistic in what way? Okay, so like, on the one hand, he definitely bungled this job to kill the priest, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, I don't know <laughs> what... Ken supposedly taught him, but it's probably not supposed to take you seven or eight bullets to kill your target. You're probably <laughs> not supposed to let them leave the initial place in which they're killed. Just that scene, rewatching it last night, I'm like, this is actually the least efficient killing I've ever seen. <laughs> I definitely had that thought occur to me as well. <laughs> I was like, he shoots him in the belly twice. The priest gets up, he shoots him in the back three more times. He allows him to walk literally to leave the room. And then that thing occurs. So on that hand, I I guess it felt more like the first time. But in order for, I guess what I understand at the beginning of the movie to work is that, you know, these are seasoned killers. But I kind of have to disavow myself of that knowledge and go, wow, it's just a real shame. Perhaps what the um, biggest thing that we should feel the most sorry about for Ray is that he was trying to get into this line of work and he screwed up so badly. You know, it's it's not that Ray killed a bunch of people over several years and then made them this mistake. I wonder if that would be even more impactful than if he was just trying to be good at something and didn't do it because the film treats him as the more competent hitman just in the way that he's more likely to be in a brawl. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of weird that 
it was his first hit that he screwed up, seeing how prone he is to violence and hitting the Canadian and his wife um, and blinding Eric, you know, throughout the film. I think that's really interesting. I want to get your thought on something. Presenting it that way as Ray is the younger person, he's he failed to get into this line of work. And yet he is the more violent of the two. So Ken, being the more seasoned hitman, do you think he might have started out in personality more along the lines of Ray? And it's only over time and almost as a form of compensation that he has become this very kind hearted, very pleasant person to the people he's not killing. Do you think it's almost like with time he shifted the scales to make things even? Maybe. I think Ray has a lot more in common with Harry mm-hmm. than Ken has in common with either Ray or Harry, if that makes sense. I'd agree. Because we see Harry so quick-tempered, and, and Ray and Harry are very, very, very similar in that way. But I think Ken was probably always the way that, that we see him. I think he was always kind-hearted. I think he was always caring, and I think that Really, him getting into this line of work was largely due to his grief over the loss of his wife. I would be surprised if he ever killed or, or, or had any inklings of killing anybody before his wife's untimely death. Even the idea, you know, it's noted briefly, but he was willing to marry outside of racial lines. Like, mm-hmm. you know, his wife was black, he said. I'm like, that alone speaks to somebody who's not a violent racist at the very least. And I know people call the character of Eric you know, a skinhead in these films and all the connotations of that. And like when Jimmy is talking about the race war, you know, and things, and he's like clearly super intolerant secretly, you know, Mm -hmm. after the cocaine is talking. But yeah, I I just think Ken was probably always the way he is. And the only reason he ever got involved in this stuff is either to repay the debt to Harry or because after his, after he lost the love of his life, he had nothing better to do and started, you know, to really batman the whole situation i like that line of thinking and i think that speaks a lot towards what grief can drive a person to do what Mm. the the need for revenge of some kind can drive someone to do things like this uh so i really like that now do you think that ken would have followed through with actually killing ray if ray hadn't been suicidal when he found him that's a really good question because up until the moment where ray holds the gun to his head it almost it, it looks like ken's about to go through with it I think Ken will go through with it. I think it's not until he realizes the depth of Ray's despair that Ken, I think, reacts. I mean, he reacts instantly mm-hmm. to stop him. His his something about preserving and giving a second chance and all this stuff is kind of. It has to be deeply reflective of how he feels about his own rebirth, how he feels about morality. Mm-hmm. as a direct result of what's happened to him. But I think he would have gone through with it because ultimately he, you know, up until that moment, had relationships and respect with, with Harry to preserve. And and because, you know, I, I, I think nobody disagrees that what Ray did in killing a child was wrong. Mm-hmm. I think, though, really it's not until he sees how much mourning Ray is doing that, that causes him to, like, flip the switch there. What about Harry? What do you have to say about him? Because it's funny, he's, he's talked about several times throughout the film before we ever see him. We hear his voice, we get the telegram. He seems to be kind of hot-tempered. Uh, he's the boss man. And so we, we expect a certain thing from this kind of person. <laughs> and then he, we first really get to know him through the phone call he has with Ken. And he is more concerned about Ray's bathroom habits and whether he's really left the bathroom and whether he's really out of the way and out of earshot than he is about the actual job. And he's just like making polite conversation. And oh, by the way, you need to meet this guy tomorrow morning. He's going to give you a gun. You need to kill him. Let me know when it's done. Uh, So it's just like talking, talking, casual. Oh, let's talk about business. Okay, let's move on. He's, He's definitely a little bit of a paradoxical character like for instance ken tells harry that they went to pizza hut for dinner he's like how was it well it was pizza hut because it was tasty, you know pizza but as soon as he mentions that he told ray to go out to a bowling alley harry goes there's no bowling alleys in bruges so 
he didn't really realize that there weren't any Pizza Huts because we, the, the, you know, there's no point where any part of this film shows a Pizza Hut. But he's so he's meticulous. He's like aware and not aware of what's going on. He is simultaneously astute and aloof at pretty much all matters that this film requires him to be. I think that's played for comedy too. I mean, when he, for instance, leaves the telegram or leaves the the message at, with the quote receptionist, and she writes politely at the bottom, "Actually, I'm the co-owner." It's allowed to be funny, right? Except we see him committing pretty horrible acts in this film, and I think it's 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 very clearly supposed to be a nice button on it that he turns out to be a man of principle. You've got to stick to your principles. If I ever offed a child, I would kill myself right there on the spot. On the spot, he says. And that's what he does when he thinks he's done it. So, I don't know. He's just a pleasure to watch. He's not the kind of person you expect to be a family man. But when we see him at his home, after Ken has very bravely called him up and said, okay, this is what I've done, we see him at his home with three kids and a wife. And a a nanny. It's like, this isn't the kind of life you'd expect for anybody who kills or hires people to kill people for a living. So we we see him with his family, and maybe that helps us to understand why he draws the line at children specifically. Mm. But the most interesting part about his character is how stuck to his principles he is. And I mean, like, he's a stalwart for his principles. He, despite the killing, despite the heavy cursing, he, he, in the end, does what he said he would do. But even before that, he spares Ken's life, at least at first, because of how Ken talks about, oh, I, I love you and I, I accept how I owe you and I'm thankful that I owe you and you've done so much for me, so I'm not going to fight you. And so he says, okay, well, I'm not going to kill you, but you still need to be punished, so here, I'll shoot your leg. But then he's like supporting him as they're walking down the stairs, like this guy who just shot the other guy in the leg, now they're helping each other get down the stairs. <laughs> it's just really strange mentality, and I'm sure we'll have more to say about that just in when we talk about like morality as presented in this film in general, but it's just a really strange line of thought where this guy claims to be principled in one way, but in another, it's just like, this is not a big deal to me. Any other character, like, are, are there any of the sort of incidental or supporting characters you wanted to talk about? Definitely wanted to talk about Chloe, a character that is pretty layered. You know, we initially find out that she is selling drugs to the people, to the, to the movie production people who are working, you know, to film a city in, in or film in Bruges. We find out that Bruges is her hometown. She gives Ray a chance not only to date her, but she develops this relationship with him sort of in spite of what the initial attraction was, whether she was going to rob him with her former boyfriend or not, and eventually bails him out of jail. Like, she sees something in Ray that is ultimately forgiving and compassionate. And without, without her character kind of appreciating Ray, we'd we'd kind of, the film would be very different, I think. But she, it's her compassion and her, well, his attraction to her that that leads him to also have something to live for. He's never sold on living. Ray is a very suicidal character throughout this whole film, and that doesn't improve. But she provides him with a very important possible future. And I think that that cannot be understated it's it's obviously very important but i like her character i like her humor i like when she kind of messes with ray and says that she had a friend who was a victim and gets him to kind of retract his statement because at that point he's been so crass for like 45 minutes of the film straight and it's not (laughs) until that moment where he actually like has to man up and apologize for for his his words i like her a lot it's interesting that Ray found somebody so similar to him in a lot of ways. They meet on the film set, which it turns out neither of them should have been on, <laughs> where he promises that, you know, if you go to dinner with me tomorrow, then I will tell you exactly what I do for a living. And so it, he almost tells it as a joke when they're actually at dinner the next night. He mm. says, oh, I kill people for a living. I shoot people for a living. And she retaliates with, oh, well, I sell drugs. And so you'd almost expect that, these two people would have been joking or maybe she would have interpreted him to be joking. So she came up with her own sort of insane career in turn. 
but instead they were both serious. They they really do <laughs> shoot people and really do sell drugs. And it's just like two peas in a pod in that respect, where they were both sort of sneaking around saying to do one thing when they actually did another. And then they found each other. And so I, I think they sort of understand each other from from that perspective mm-hmm. of doing something in secret that is kind of taboo or i say kind of it's obviously taboo (laughs) (laughs) and they know it but it's how they make a living and so it's it's really interesting that two similar people found each other in that way i kind of wanted to ask too how do you feel about the cliffhanger i guess i forgot that the film ends at a cliffhanger but whether or not ray lives or dies and survives his injuries as inflicted by Harry at the end of the film at the climax seems to be a big question. I don't know what I think about the cliffhanger. I mean, I don't know if I have an answer for which way I think it goes. I'd like to think that characters do have chances at redemption. And so that if he, if he did pull through and did survive, then he might start a happy life with Chloe and that they would both sort of take a turn for the better and seek honest livings, maybe in Bruges or maybe not in Bruges, just depending on how Ray gets his way or not. But I don't know. I, did, do you have a consideration for how things maybe go or a hope? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I too hope that he lives, uh, if, if only for the fact that Chloe seems quite distraught by his, by his uh, death or, or severe injuries. Mm-hmm. I think that in the way that we all like to see a happy ending, but also like to believe that people can be redeemed i i hope that he gets to live and account for his actions and and earlier in the film you know ken's sacrifice to save him ken's final words being harry's here take my gun after barely surviving that horrific fall just everything seems to be about preserving ray and i think that just so that ken's death isn't in vain ray should live based on everything we've seen in the film. Right. That was a thought I was just having as well, is that the whole point of Ken losing his life was that he he did everything he could to see that Ray kept his. Yeah, I mean, Ken really chose to, I mean, he was bleeding out, sure, but chose to die in such a way that it would alert Ray and allow Ray one last, you know, opportunity to kind of escape or fight back. And I think that that is, is, is super important. So I, I would like to see redemption, but I think, you know, a lot of the other characters would too. And Ken and Ray, this it's so interesting that you point out that like Ken showed Ray kind of the ways and took him in and 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 that's not that's evidenced not only by the um sort of of mice and men e uh taking him out to pasture kind of thing that the 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 themes that play in this film, but also Ken straight up says to to Ray, I guess it's on the bench right after he tried killing himself, he gives him a a path forward. He says, save the next boy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you can't undo what you did, but put yourself in a position where you can save people because killing yourself or, or, or being dead, you can't affect that kind of change that way. And so I like to believe that Ray has a pretty clear path forward. If he does survive his injuries, he will seek to save the next boy, as it were. I really like the metaphor of saving the, the next boy, but I also thought it was really funny that Ray took it literally. Like, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> uh, the only other character I suppose we haven't really talked about is Jimmy. Do you have anything to say about Jimmy, the, the dwarf character? It's a good role. I, I, like the, I like the character a lot. Definitely multifaceted. He puts up with a lot of Ray's psycho crap about whether or not dwarves have a higher propensity of suicide than most people. I generally like the character. I think he is a, a prop of the story in so far as he needs to be. So, you know, I don't I don't feel great about necessarily like the wokeness of this part of the film. But I think that it is real to life in that you'll get characters who have that kind of intolerance or prejudice or stereotyping thrust upon them and they have to respond to that in a real setting. I don't know. He does he does ultimately feel like a fully developed character. We see him have recreational drug use, we see him have his opinions of politics, and we see him make friends or choose not to make friends as well. So I don't know. I like the character. 
I also wanted to talk about Yuri. Here's a guy who is very forthcoming with a, a place that he thinks would be good to kill people. The alcoves, you have this word. The, the, the alcoves. Alcoves. Um, do you think that maybe he convinced anybody ever to kill somebody in the alcoves? Uh, maybe <laughs> I'd like to think so, or maybe it's just like his his sort of dream. Like yeah. he 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 gives the guns, but he doesn't do the killing. And so if if he could, if he did, then this is how he would do it. He would use the alcoves. The alcoves. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just I hope somebody will take this guy up on his offer. Like he tra- he brought it up to Harry. He brought it up to to Ken, you know, and, and nobody over the course of the film seemed to really pay much attention to the alcos, so. You have this word, yes? Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> nook and cranny might be uh, more accurate. Oh, yes, nooks and crannies. <laughs> it is fun. It is so, the world feels lived in, the city feels lived in, the characters really feel like they belong in this place and time. I feel good about this movie's characters for going on each of their their journeys they each have little little teeny journeys to go on just one more quick thing circling back to jimmy for just a moment mm-hmm. uh, i think there are a couple interesting things to point out in that one the suicidal character points out the suicidal tendencies of dwarfs yep. so i don't know if there's some sort of like trying to push off this feeling that he has within himself onto projection. somebody else yeah. right projection and there's also the the fact that dwarfs or little people, however you want to refer to them in a politically correct way, these are people who are prejudiced against in a lot of ways. They have their own struggles in life. And then for this character to have such a racist outlook on life, it's it's almost uh, just irony. I thought that was worth pointing out as well. Interestingly enough, uh, and I, you know, up until just now, I didn't look up whether or not there's a actual propensity of dwarfs to commit suicide because I, I knew growing up that those who who have uh, dwarfism suffer from different various health issues and tend to die younger. That was something that I had been told growing up. But I just found out that actor Vern Troyer's death was ruled as suicide. Vern Troyer from the Austin Powers films, mm. who played Mini-Me. But I didn't know that before. It's just kind of one of those offhand, very off-color kind of topics that make me mildly cringe that it's like in this movie. But it's it's a mo- ultimately it's a movie about imperfect people, and that kind of is also a reason why I think this film stands out to me is that there are char- there are characters who would normally drive me up the the wall and make me very uncomfortable, and topics that would make me uncomfortable for conversation. But it's played in such a way that I feel okay after watching it. You know what? It might even not be projection on the part of Ray towards Jimmy, but what if he's just seeking somebody who is also experiencing the same feelings of depression and maybe feeling <sighs> suicidal as a, a person to talk to? I love that. Maybe, um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Going on to music, we already talked a little bit about the score, and I don't have like a whole lot to say about it necessarily, but... Carter Burwell does a fantastic job here. And so much of the score, in fact, the vast majority, except for one or two scenes, is very peaceful. It's very sort of introspective, very fitting of this sort of quiet town, snowy location. There's a lot of melancholy to the score. Uh, it's, it's very heavily piano. It's sad listening to it separate of the film, honestly. It's beautiful, but it is sad. Absolutely. And I, I, I looked up, um, there's two songs that play that aren't score songs. So one of them is the song called Raglan Road by the Chieftains, and the other one is St. John the Gambler by Towns Van Zandt. In both of these instances, the music, while not scored, the lyrics seem to really add uh, you know, meaning, extra meaning to the scene that they appear in, so I really love that. The very rare moment when a song is playing like over the radio in the background um that isn't scored i find to be very well fitted well very well suited and i i like that that moment as well i think the music is just really really good full stop i really like it again i, I don't have a whole lot to say i was listening to it last night as i was typing out my, out my notes and it was very nice writing music <laughs> and the action music we get does lean a little bit more heavily into the the sort of rock electronic kind of stuff that you got a lot in the the mid to late 2000s and so it's fitting in that respect too but mm-hmm. the heavy 
part of the score, the the majority of it is that really nice piano stuff. And so if, if you want to just listen to some like peaceful piano music separate from the film, there is some there's a really good soundtrack album out on Apple Music. Well, and 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 speaking of that, there's actually on the uh, DVD features. So I watched it on my my DVD copy of In Bruges. There is a special feature that is a, a boat tour of Bruges, and it's actually photography. Whether they they used it, whether whether dir- the writer director used it in pre production, or whether it's B roll footage for the actual film that they use, or something, I I can't quite remember. But it's several minutes of the boat ride through the canals it's not with the actors it's just the cameras showing forward and they play the music of the score during it so it's one of the most tranquil bonus features ever to be put on any dvd that i've seen (laughs) that's really great i'll have to check that out see if i can find it and speaking of bonus features just since it was mentioned wikipedia says that matt smith of doctor who fame had a cameo as a young harry in some sort of deleted scene so maybe you should check that out because matt smith was in this movie in some capacity god yes i'm going to check that out (laughs) now as we typically do with comedies on the podcast we take a moment to talk about our favorite funny moments (laughs) and jokes now trying to avoid as much of the language as possible unfortunately I was going to can we can we say any of the funny lines in this we, film? Can I, we? I kind of wish we could, but I also don't want the explicit rating on, on the podcast. <laughs> so um, if you want to just list a few of your favorites, trying to avoid that, that would be much appreciated on my end. But we can still sort of laugh about it. OK, the easiest one to truncate to censor <laughs> would be, look, I mean, most of the funny lines, I think, are coming from Harry in this film, mm-hmm. at least to me. Those were the ones that made me uncontrollably belly laugh or giggle. Um, they're absurd. I think Harry, more than any of the other characters, is meant to be seen as ridiculous. So when he's destroying the phone and his wife comes in and says it's an inanimate object and he replies you're an inanimate bleeping object i can't for a man for a family man who loves his wife to have such a temper that he replies you're an inanimate object i'm like i it gets me every time i shouldn't be laughing but i a hot i i've never laughed harder honestly like it's so absurd and it tickles me. There's a line early in the film when Ken goes up to the top of the bell tower. And while he's up there, Ray comes across some larger American tourists and he warns them against going up the bell tower. And this <laughs> this part isn't the funny part because he's very rude. He does basically yeah. just call these people fat. And so they react very poorly. They try to chase him and they get winded and give up the chase. And so they start to head up and out comes Ken fresh from the top of the bell tower and he hears that these americans are going up and he looks at them and he very kindly says oh you might want to reconsider there's very some some very narrow steps and because of this interaction with ray they (laughs) shout screw you mother effer (laughs) that was the funny part to me was their reaction after uh the the interaction with ray and ray just says oh i don't know what's up with them just they're they're americans i guess (laughs) yeah yeah and and there is a uh, running theme of americans being loud or crass or whatever <laughs> and it just it fits so perfectly because like you said the, the ken moment happened completely independently of the ray moment at least to ken but of course you know the the rule of threes for comedy applies because we later find out that a, an american had a heart attack on those stairs so yeah i was just about to point that out as well so that announcement uh, it's not really a funny line it's not even independently funny at all but because Ken sort of had a kind heart about that, it's kind of a funny bit. But yeah, um, definitely, definitely so many funny lines, a lot of them by Harry. <laughs> I, think, I genuinely think that's the only one I the only one I can even try and censor. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole bunch that I just have censored out in my notes as well there, there's a bunch but I, I we don't need to go into too much of them i think we can go ahead and just say check out the movie and enjoy the humor coming from the mouths of the actors <laughs> because they'll do a lot more justice than we do let's talk about the the greater themes and the takeaways from this movie i think the number one at least for me is morality among killers mm. uh, you have ray who is ken's friend and 
Harry is told to kill his friend because of what he does. He can't really argue against killing a man who killed an innocent child. Like you can't really come up with an excuse for that. Mm. And he does say, well, killing's my job. It's what I do. So there's that. There's the idea of whether it's justifiable to, or more, or more acceptable to kill one person versus another or one person versus a child. I mean, really killing should just be killing, but these men don't seem to see it quite that way. Uh, we don't get a history of the people they've killed or why they killed them. We learn that they saw them as bad people or people who'd done bad things. And honestly, the, the way it's phrased in the film is not very nice people. So coming from killers or hitmen, what, what do we take that to mean? You know? Yeah. And I think that's there's definitely maybe this could be uh, extrapolated to be a theme of the film, but like the gray areas. Universally, this film kind of agrees that killing a kid is wrong and right. killing a kid, whether intentional or accidental, is a, a is a huge issue. It's a problem. But there's various gray moments, such as when Ray blinds Eric in self-defense very clearly as Ken okay another funny line Ken pointing out it seems to me like or Harry points out it seems to me like this was all your fault you allowed your gun <laughs> to be taken off of you you know and he used the exact phrasing of calling him a poof just like oh like, my like, god like, it's pretty it's just it's just so so good but but so that there's you know Ray reacting in self-defense to being robbed. However, there's also the Canadians, right? As is already discussed, if somebody comes at you with a bottle, you kind of got to put them down. And so Ray's hitting up the woman in the face where he knocks her flat out to stop her advanced attack. Is that justified or is it not? And so there's these moments of antagonism and there's these moments of violence and i think that the film is consciously trying to show us uh really a, a, a charcuterie spread of the ways that human beings can violently interact you have these characters who ray is wanting to atone for his sins his final voiceover as he's being carted off to the hospital to see whether he's going to live or not he says you know if I, if I come out of this i'd like to go to that little boy's house in london to apologize to his mother accept whatever punishment comes my way whether it's death or prison or whatever it might be mm -hmm. of course he hopes he doesn't die because he realizes that for him hell might be bruges but <laughs> <laughs> the final last middle finger at bruges what did bruges deserve what did the citizens or the mayor or the city of bruges ever do to deserve this film that just takes a big old crap on it. <laughs> but what there's one final thing there at the end of the film that really interests me is when Harry has shot Ray and then he sees that he has killed Jimmy. And Harry sees this person dressed as a child and assumes it's a child, even though we know that it's Jimmy who is not a child. Mm -hmm. And as he starts to turn the gun on his on himself to live up to the principles that he has set for himself to fulfill the promise he gave us earlier in the film of killing himself if he ever killed a child. Ray, who has just been shot by this man and actively pursued by this man, tries to stop him to say, wait, this is not a child, right. to stop this man from killing himself. And so still you have this question, what do you owe this man to lead to you wanting to save his life? And so I think that maybe says something to the fact that maybe Ray really isn't out for this line of work. Yes, he's violent. Yes, he's crass. Yes, he is politically incorrect. But is he a killer? It seems that that not, might not be the case. And he doesn't want to be responsible for Harry's death because of misinformation. Exactly. He's not vengeful. He's not, like, e even at the point of being killed, we know where he stands on. He thinks he does deserve to die. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, he does move to save Harry. And it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's the, the places, the points at which both good guys and bad guys and all that interact, like, for instance, where Harry and Ray both agree to spare the life of Marie by leaving, but he's going to jump in the canal. He's mm -hmm. going to go out the window and jump in the canal so they don't need to kill each other in the hotel. There's these moments where they negotiate, even bitter enemies or people who are pitted against each other are finding these moments of common ground there and i think that it's a very beautiful thing that even in ray's you know supposedly dying moments he is either so tired of death in general that he wants to prevent the death of of harry 
there's definitely a lot of consideration for not causing a scene among normal people, for making sure there aren't additional casualties, for discussing the best way to get somewhere safe to then shoot at each other. (laughs) Uh, So I just find that so fascinating. I I can't help but linger on that. These people who are killing people, like that is by definition their role is they are hitmen, they are killers. And yet they have all this consideration for other things. And I just think that's such a a fascinating juxtaposition of simultaneous uh, taking of life and care for life. It really makes you kind of think about how, not really the media, but how popular mainstream movies and, 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 and TV kind of work to humanize killers. I'm thinking also about like Leon the Professional, another good movie with a killer that you love, a killer that you sympathize with. And um, I find myself grouping these two films together because, you know, I care about Ken and, and to an extent, Ray as people. And I would never necessarily agree with what they do for a living. But I think that they, you, you recognize their shared humanity, I guess, is what I want to say. Do you have any other big takeaways from the film? I think in general, I would love to see a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we can't. Still in effing Bruge. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to still see, you know, more stuff that that everything that I've managed to see with Brendan Gleeson in it, I have loved. Everything I have managed to see with Clemens Wesley, but I a lot of her films in particular um, are French language, and I haven't necessarily been very easily able to come across. Or other body of work. These are these are actors who, from the get go, were working primarily in England and Ireland, and their films may not have ever had American releases. Their large body of work, some of their best work, might not even have an American release. And so, this film inspires me to see more of uh, their work. As for any other takeaways for me, there's. I mean, there's friendship and trust, you know, there's not a whole lot to be said about that, but there's several instances of friendship or relationship taking precedent over other things. Ken tells Yuri when he gets the gun that, of course, I'm going to kill him. It's what I do. We talked about whether he would have or not, but there was another funny moment after Ken's about to kill Ray, but he stops when he learns that he's suicidal and they're sort of just talking on the bench. Ray says, oh, can I see your gun? And so he hands over the gun (laughs) and he like meticulously looks it over. Oh, yes, this is a very nice gun. And he Uh hands it back to him, this guy who was just about to kill him. So there's a lot of trust there in that relationship, despite what almost took place in Ken killing him. And then you have the example, once again, at the top of the bell tower, when Harry spares Ken, when he talks about his friendship and his love and his gratefulness for what Harry has done for him. I need to see a lot more from Brendan Gleeson, and Colin Farrell is a relatively new actor to me as well. I know he's been around for a while, but really the only things I've seen him in are Fantastic Beast and Saving Mr. Banks and In Bruges, I guess. That's pretty oh, much wow. it. Uh, so, yeah, you've got to see The Lobster, I'm told. I've heard that good things about that and that's pretty new i'm also a huge rachel weiss fan so back like back from watching her in the mummy um brendan gleason i've seen in paddington 2 uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was in edge of tomorrow yeah that's right yeah so definitely paddington 2 if you haven't seen that as well i know he's a uh, great in that okay <laughs> i say that unironically he's really genuinely the best no thing i've that. heard amazing things about paddington too I-, I need to get around to seeing it yeah for sure Well, do you have any closing thoughts on the movie? I love that this film, again, is really not the type of film I would normally go for based on its plot alone. But everything about this performance, the humor, the themes, the morals, all the stuff we've discussed, make this one of my favorite films. Perhaps it's the subversion of expectations. Perhaps not. Maybe I am just really, I don't know, sick and dark inside. (laughs) But I genuinely count this as one of my top movies, so it was very fitting, and I appreciate that you and I were able to get together and talk about it. Yeah, I was glad to be introduced to it. I'm looking forward to seeing if anybody else has thoughts on this film, because I mean, when I logged it in Letterboxd last night, I saw a couple of my friends had rated it very highly as well. There was a four-star, there was a five-star, several, mm-hmm. several four-stars, actually. So there's, there's love for this film out there. It's got a good rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so it, it, it's definitely out there as far as comedies go. And like I said, I think it is very thoughtful in its presentation of morality and exploration of whether 
somebody can be redeemed from a lifestyle such as this or from an incident such as this where you accidentally kill a child. Uh, Roger Ebert, I'm looking, gave this film a four out of four stars. Wow. there's, there's a lot of love for In Bruges, and so I hope that everybody enjoyed the conversation and definitely reach out and add to it. We'd love to hear from you, whether you tag us on Twitter or send in an email. We'd love to hear your thoughts on In Bruges. Well, that's the end of the 80th episode of Cinescope. Thanks once again, Eric, for jumping in and returning to the show at a moment's notice. You know, we talked earlier about how I've been listening to MuggleCast for a long time, basically since 2005. And it's just kind of surreal to to look back on the history of Cinescope so far and to see that my most frequent guest is one of my podcaster friends. And I, I do consider you a friend. And I think that's so awesome. I'm very fortunate to to have somebody like you to talk movies with. I feel utterly the same, man. I mean, this you you created this platform for friends to get together and talk about these movies, and I love every minute of it. And these episodes of this show are some of my favorite podcast episodes that I've ever been a part of. And also, I love being able when when like somebody new has never seen Serendipity or somebody new has never <laughs> seen Frequency, I can just be like, "Oh, I was on a podcast episode about that. Listen to this." And yes. forty five minutes later, they they like text me back and they're like, "Oh yeah, okay, that was great." <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I thank you for being a wonderful, well cataloged place for me to record my thoughts on movies because I do course. not have a movie <laughs> podcast. But I guess I do. And it's this one. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be talking to you pretty soon, I think. Yeah, I think so. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast, at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating, leave us a review, hit the subscribe button. It's a great way to help increase visibility for the show and help us to gain more listeners. If you would like to directly email the show, you can send feedback and ideas to Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Eric, what are the places that you would like people to find you on the internet? Namely, on Twitter, uh, at S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N, Spieler, man. That's basically the only social channel I'm actively trying to grow <laughs> right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm on Instagram, too, but that you can find that through my posts. But yeah, that's that's where I'm at. And follow my podcast, MuggleCast, on Twitter and Instagram as well. And the best place to find me is at Chadadada, also on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Something about the two of us and difficult to spell Twitter handles. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Less than less common. We're, we're yeah. unique snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> There's also my other podcast, An American Workplace, which has wrapped for the most part. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. It was a it was a long journey. It was a lot of fun, and uh, my co-host Katie and I still have a couple more things to record eventually, hopefully in the very near future. And you can find that podcast in its whole archive, talking about every single episode of The Office, the first podcast on iTunes to do that, I believe. Uh, you can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. And the show notes and all of this contact information that we just went over really fast can be found at the website thecinescopepodcast.com. So. Thanks, Eric, once again for coming on the show. Any closing comments or goodbyes to say? <sighs> I want to visit Bruges one day. And <laughs> if there's a, a parting thought, it's that I hope that this film, which in many ways is a middle finger to Bruges and quaint towns like it, I hope that it has actually managed to drum up tourism for Bruges in, in the way that, like, non destructive tourism. Right. You know, I, I hope that it's really boosted the economy and i hope that the lines really i just hope that ken's enthusiasm you know a church from 1100 and other such things really show people that there's just more of a wider world out there and they'd be silly not to visit it's a fairy tale place you gotta check it's it out it's a fairy tale like a dream <laughs> i wanted to do something nice for the boy <laughs> well thanks everybody for listening to episode 80 of cinescope we'll be back next time you'll hear more from eric very soon and have fun and celebrate movies Bye-bye.
So what else have you been up to? God, um, MuggleCast is weekly. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually caught up aside from this week's episode. Oh, nice. Yeah, it, it took oh, a long hey. time for me to get back on track with staying up to date, but I, I did it. Oh, that's really cool. I yeah. appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, we're having a lot of fun uh, going through book five, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that's, that's going, but I'm also, I'm editing every episode too. So mm-hmm. that just takes it all, uh, takes a, a lot of time, it um, does. particularly in the weekends. And then my work job, um, with Redbox is picking up and still, uh, I'm taking up more of my time than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely more of my concentration than it used to, um, just for various reasons. But, um, yeah, yeah, like on the whole, 2020 has not been so bad. I'm looking forward to it. I feel myself in general optimistic. I've also been able to pick up some tasks that I had let sit for like a year mm-hmm. um, in regards to like self-betterment and organization around the home and just some other stuff. So I, I feel really good like progress, I guess, and really good like this next year is going to be a, a good one. Um, with an entire continent burning, I don't know how I can really yeah. <laughs> feel that. Yeah. But uh, I think that it uh, will be a good year for sure. Yeah. Well, new decade, time to pick up old habits, that kind of stuff. Roaring twenties and ones. all that. <laughs> yeah, we should have a second roaring twenties, probably with fewer drugs and fewer um, poverty. But uh, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> Sweet. That was a good time. I really love that. Yeah. And stepping back into the the comfy loafers. That's what that was. Good conversation. 